the sound of children going to school. Here they'll spend their days learning, playing, socialising. It's where many of our earliest memories are formed. Playtime, school dinners, assembly, tissue paper, carpet time. The best days of our lives. But my child didn't want to go to school. I can remember my mum standing by the front door and I was screaming, begging her not to take me. Why are they not enjoying it? Why are they behaving differently to the other children? I would walk by myself and I wouldn't get there until like 10 because I didn't like seeing all those people. A diagnosis of autism promises to be the beginning of getting the support children need. But too often, that's not what happens. You're given the diagnosis after this really long, really horrible journey, and then you're just dropped off a cliff edge. This is Missing the Mark, a podcast about how the school system is failing autistic children. My name is Eliza Fricker, and I am an author, illustrator and parent. I draw the Missing the Mark comic strip about the education system and autism. In this series, I'm exploring the difficult process of diagnosis, what this means in our current education system, and asking, can we find a better way? I'll be talking to autistic people, including children and parents, to reveal what life is like for autistic children at school. With the help of leading autism experts, I'll be finding out how damaging the mainstream school environment can be. I'll be exploring alternative ways to educate children who don't thrive in the mainstream model. And in light of the growing mental health crisis among young people, I'll be asking how far the UK school model is out of date and in need of reform. How far are schools failing not just autistic children, but everyone? If we look at the prison population, for example, we've got an extremely high number of our prison population who have been failed by the education system. How can we run a society, or an education system for that matter, that has no interest at all in a person's personality and how they perceive the world and how they experience the world? Episode one, The Wrong Fit. In this episode, we'll hear what it's like to struggle to be in school and why getting a diagnosis of autism isn't necessarily the golden ticket. So I was just drawing, drawing our experiences and it was really to help me process what had happened over those years. I think a lot of the time I probably found it really difficult at that time to even articulate how I felt and all of our experiences because when you're in that system and you're really stressed, you're just trying to get through it. This is one I use when I do talks about school anxiety. And this is very early on going into primary school. And it was a really lovely little primary school, actually. And they were very, very kind, all the teachers. But my 
child didn't want to go. In this picture, my child is hanging on to me. And I say, you learnt ways to hold the handle of my bag so tight it was impossible to break away without hurting you. That was often the position we were in in the mornings, trying to get my child into school who didn't want to go in. Harry Thompson is autistic and an advocate for the autistic experience. The feeling I felt the most before the age of 10 was fear, dread, panic. Things stick out to me. Things like, you're ruining your life, and naughty, and lazy, being told I'll never amount to anything. I would refuse to go in, and then I would run across this massive field. And I would stay there until like a teacher would come because I didn't like seeing all those people. Graham Brown Martin, broadcaster and author of Learning Reimagined. I was constantly interested in everything. Why, 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 why? Bouncing off the walls and everything else. That was who I was. And then, you know, my parents would tell me off for that. And so therefore that part of my personality was bad. And then you go to school, you know, and, and school they value sitting quiet, you know, and listening and, you know, taking down notes, unquestioning it. Of course, I wasn't doing that. And so then I was bad. I was sent to the head teachers. I was just juvenile delinquent. I was told constantly that I was bad. I wouldn't amount to anything. I remember it all started with he's daydreaming, he's not listening, he's not engaged, and things escalated and snowballed. This is the first thing that I drew, which was just using old photographs of when my daughter was little. And these are photos that I was just looking through and remembering that before school, I had no worries and we had a really nice time. And I don't want to forget those, really. So I just drew them and wrote about what we were doing at that time. And they're really good, happy memories for me before nursery school. So the first one is my daughter sitting in the park with her sun hat on. And I've written 18 months, we spent hours with friends and their babies in the park eating sandwiches and playing on the swings. 13 months, your first proper walk in proper shoes. Uh, 15 months, we didn't have much money, but we did have nice days out. And I remember making buttered malt loaf and my daughter eating it all covered in sand. They were just great days out. We just had a really nice time. So I knew this wasn't bad behaviour when my daughter went to school. This was distress. 
What do we do as parents when our children aren't being like other children? Lindsay is another parent who has two autistic children. Her son is 13. Lindsay and I connected through our similar experiences. He was having a really difficult time at school. The nursery was okay. And then the first year after that, so reception year, where there were literally three expectations per day you know, of, of kind of things to achieve, like then write a story, draw a picture. They caused him a huge amount of anxiety. And it seemed that he was just a little different than his peers. So we kind of soldiered on with school for a number of years. Lindsay thought the school might be more flexible to make life easier for her son. But like many parents, there were fines or threats of fines hanging over them. Often parents are just trying to help their children. He was allowed by school in his early years to go to a forest school one one day a week. So he did that from age five. Because he was having a tough time, we just thought the school allows flexi schooling. So when the school stopped allowing a flexi school policy and, and fined us, we, we basically said, we're not going to stop sending him. It's right for him. And we appealed and the school turned down our appeal and they fined us for carrying on sending him. So in the end, to avoid prosecution, we took him out of the forest school and sent him full time to his primary school. Things went downhill real quick after that. We ended up with what people called school refusal that I'd never heard of, and him not wanting to go to school and starting to say worrying things about depression and wanting to die. And at that point, school started to take notice. We had a parents' evening where the class teacher said, you know, we're just not sure what else we can do, really. She's really struggling to engage a lot of the time. And we were seeing not just distressed behaviour at the drop-offs in the morning, but on the way home as well. And I read an article that was in the Huffington Post and it was by a woman and I think it was called A Letter to My Daughter. And it really resonated that there were things in there about sort of those key milestones, um, which I don't normally like to adhere to too much, but I could see when you were at that stage of comparing with other parents that we weren't moving in the same way as other children her age and when we talk to other parents and so I talked to the GP and I'd already been a couple of times before and that was when we got the referral for the child assessment centre and probably about a year after that we were um, given the autism diagnosis. Dr Naomi Fisher is a clinical psychologist and author of Changing Our Minds. If your child is struggling in school, 
then sometimes the school say that they think that maybe this child would benefit from a diagnosis. So I used to work in a neurodevelopmental clinic where we did these diagnoses. And basically the current process is that parents will be put on a waiting list or children will be put on a waiting list. And that waiting list varies depending on whereabouts in the country you are. When I was in London working, it was two years that people were waiting for that assessment. And the diagnostic model is a medical model. So this isn't just for ADHD, but it's for a whole range of different mental health problems. And they work from the assumption that people have symptoms which indicate that they have an underlying disorder. So, for example, you know, if you have diabetes, you'll have symptoms of it. We can identify from those symptoms. We can then do blood tests to test whether you actually do have diabetes. And then we can identify that you have an underlying problem which is causing the symptoms. So the same model is applied to behaviour. So we'd say, okay, do you have all these different ways of behaving? Okay, you probably have, it used to be actually have, now people talk about it a bit differently, but have ADHD or you have autism, as if it's something, some kind of underlying disorder. And that is the medical model. The DSM-5 manual defines autism spectrum disorder as persistent difficulties with social communication and social interaction. And this includes sensory behaviour. Basically, it's a list of problems. Deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, ranging, for example, from... It's a list of things that you might not do the same as these other children who we perceive as being typical. Emotions or affect to failure to initiate... And if you meet enough of those criteria, you'll get a diagnosis. Deficits in non-verbal communicative behaviours... It is an arbitrary system in the sense that... We don't have evidence that there is a particular group, a distinct group of children or young people or adults who meet criteria who are different. To a total lack of facial expressions and non-verbal communication. Deficits in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. What we do is it's basically a long developmental interview with someone like me, with parents, and then the child does an observational um assessment with somebody else and then we collect lots of documentation from school from different people who work with child different reports if they've seen a speech and language therapist or an occupational therapist we bring all of that together we look at it all and we say yes we think this person meets criteria for diagnosis or no we don't think this person meets criteria for diagnosis schools don't have enough resources to help everybody who seems to need help so the diagnosis work is a kind of gateway they're a way of saying yes this level of need is high enough, is higher. Schools will often not do anything until there is that diagnosis. As a parent, you think this is, you know, going to open those doors. But then alongside that, we had a narrative that was saying they'll be fine. Often it'll be talking to parents, you know, you need to do something about this way, or they'll be suggesting that the parents need to go on a parenting course, or that there's no problem. If the parent says this child's having really, really distressed after school, really distressed before school, but they appear to be fine in school, then the school will say, well, obviously the problem must be at home. Either there's something wrong with your brain, in which case we'll diagnose it, or it's your fault. And that's the brain or blame dichotomy, which um, Professor Mary Boyle has written about. So parents feel very blamed often. If their children are unhappy at school, their children aren't complying at school. So for a lot of parents, they can wait two years. So in that time, 
things are getting more and more difficult. Yeah. Behaviour is getting probably more challenging. Yeah. You know, school is getting harder. They're not going to support unless you have this diagnosis. Yeah. So by the time you get to that appointment, yeah. there's almost a death desperate. Get desperate. Absolutely. And you as a parent think that you'll get that diagnosis and things will be better. Yeah. I remember thinking that now people will understand. My child will be less judged and so will I. People will understand that there is more going on. It wasn't our fault. Our children are not just naughty. Diagnosis can bring understanding and support, right? Dr Chris Bagley, psychologist, lecturer at UCL and director of research at States of Mind, an organisation that provides young people with the skills and support that is required for them to thrive in the world. Schools will actively seek, as will some parents, a diagnosis, for example, of ADHD. Now, having worked with the excluded children in the prison sector and the people referral unit sector for quite some time, for those young people, sometimes it can be really helpful to frame it using a diagnosis like dyslexia because it gives them a reason why they're struggling with this particular thing. And it means that they're not stupid. It means that they're not an idiot. And it means that they can start to perceive themselves slightly differently. And essentially that's done with their consent. And you can do that very slowly over time and alongside the teachers and the parents. And I've noticed that can be really helpful. And I've met young adults who've come back to me years later when I bump into them and said that, it was really helpful going through that process because it's helped them to communicate with employers and their friends and their family, and they don't feel stupid anymore. The assessment felt like a breakthrough for us. I wanted this diagnosis for my child because I wanted more understanding. Here's Lindsay again. I think it's probably fair to say because I was thrilled that somebody was taking it seriously, thrilled that I wasn't making it up. I was happy that we were in a in a system that for me would give us perhaps some answers or some resources. It helped, I think, for him to know that I was taking it seriously, that he was struggling he was going to be diagnosed and I think that was going to be important for me as proof that what we were experiencing was not me making things up because that had been kind of leveled at me that he wasn't being just difficult that he wasn't being you know kind of dramatic and that we were going to need more support because I was really struggling so my nerves were hanging by a thread and I knew that something else was going to need to happen in order for us to survive. Our assessment was several hours long and at the end of receiving the diagnosis we were given some printouts about autism and I remember thinking, is this it? shortly after we were sent on what would become one of many parenting courses. I still had a sense of relief, but little else seemed to be coming with it. 
I'm not sure what I expected, but I think the realisation was dawning that perhaps it didn't bring an awful lot. Does it make a difference to those who remember being diagnosed? Autistic advocate Harry Thompson. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it's actually a very difficult question for me to answer because if a parent asks me, is a diagnosis important? I'll say yes. But even when I was officially declared to be neurodivergent, many of the teachers didn't necessarily care enough to look into what that meant. And I wasn't that fussed about receiving all of these diagnoses at the time, probably because so little happened in the way of supporting me. And I thought, well, what's the point? Because there's such stigma attached to these, quote, labels, unquote. And I feel that as a teenager, I was mostly preoccupied with friends and validation. And if being autistic or ADHD was going to make me appear weirder than I already was, then I wasn't going to mention it to anybody. And I didn't, for the most part. I wanted the diagnosis to bring acceptance and understanding, flexibility. But instead, I still had a child who was sitting in the corridor. So I got more meetings, more parenting classes, and my child got more visual supports. So why wasn't it getting any better? Kieran Rose is an autistic consultant who offers training from the autistic perspective. For him, the problem is the diagnosis is seen through a lens of deficit. The implication there is that there's kind of a gold standard human being that everybody's measured up against. And, and if you have flaws in some way, as they're perceived, in being that gold standard person then you're broken in some way and you need to be fixed in order to push you towards being close to that gold standard person. What it should be is validating. What it should be is this is recognising who you are as a human being. But we very much focus on what are perceived as weaknesses when actually we can reframe those weaknesses, in inverted commas, and we can look to strengths as well, and which is something that's very rarely done with autistic children. Autistic people are people who have broken communication methods are broken behaviourally and are broken in terms of how they move physically, how they think, they feel. Everything is pathologised when you're autistic. You're given the diagnosis after this, after this really long, really horrible journey and then you're just dropped off a cliff edge. My child wasn't broken. They didn't need to be fixed. Why were we trying to do this? Why was the onus on my child to fit the system and not the system to fit my child? Dr Naomi Fisher. I think that's the big problem. That I think you always need to think about the person in the context of their environment. And the way I think about diagnoses like autism or ADHD now is very much as an interaction between a person and their environment. So I don't think it really makes sense to say this person just in isolation is these things, you know, has these deficits in quotes of, because it's always about 
how does this person manage the demands of their environment? So unfortunately, you put parents and young people in this difficult position where the problem has to be located within the young person in order for them to get help. So it's unusual for a school or a parent actually initially to be located the problem in the environment and say, maybe this environment really doesn't suit. No one ever said that. No one ever, ever said to us, maybe this isn't the right environment. No one really did that. No. So perhaps we need to take a closer look at the environment itself. In the next episode, I look at our education system. How does diagnosis work in school? What are the pressures parents and teachers are under to make sure our children attend and succeed? Inclusion isn't about let's shoehorn this person into the room and and pack them up with all these different adaptations so that they can exist in that environment. Inclusion is changing the environment so the person can walk into it with with as little adaptations as possible. I couldn't speak. They were like, is anyone in there? Is anyone in there? And I was like trying to speak, saying, yes, no one understand me. And people just thought I was doing it to get attention. I hate the school. It feels like a trap. It was like you're glued to a seat and no one would listen to you. Missing the Mark was written and produced by me, Eliza Fricker. The executive producer was Eve Streeter and the sound designer was Simon James. Music in this series was kindly donated by Kate Brooks, The Relations, Sim, Sean Julian, Tess Roby, John Ty, Abby Wade, Joel Wells and Simon James. The series was funded by Necessity, a living archive rooted in social and environmental justice. Thank you to everyone who's taken part, especially the kids and their families. Yeah.